We want to especially thank Don King for his kindness in helping us, and he's going to help us a little further. Um, I want to also announce something before I forget it, and that is that uh, if you have a television set and watch Channel 4 television, WFBC-TV, uh, tomorrow evening at the 6 p.m. news, and I think again at the 11 o'clock news, uh, one of the members of our, one of the people who attends our congregation is an Episcopalian, Yvonne Desu, uh, will be uh, speaking on Channel 4 about the plight of the people in Haiti who have suffered terribly as a result of an awful hurricane that hit them uh, earlier in uh, September. Uh, great devastation has been wrought there. Many, many people are starving to death. And uh, the focus of attention has been directed to other parts of the world, uh, but really on an, only an hour and a half from Miami itself. We have literally hundreds of thousands of people in Haiti who are faced with starvation. And uh, Yvonne will be on uh, television tomorrow evening on the WFBC uh, TV program PM uh, News. And also there will be a story about uh, our friend Mr. Van Wingerden, a Dutchman, uh, who has tried to do something with a program, a nonprofit Christian program called Double Harvest in assisting the people there uh, to avoid starvation. Now then our lesson, the second lesson, is taken from the Gospel according to John. It's a familiar passage of scripture, and yet it's always been a controversial passage of scripture to people who study textual criticism. Uh, it comes from John chapter 8 in the New American Standard uh, Version of the Bible, which I'm reading from. You know, we had to get our bulletin out earlier in the week uh, so that the people here at the college could go away for Thanksgiving, and so you have to sometimes put in announcements before they're uh, completed or considered, and sermon titles are always, uh, uh, I don't know what, they're hard for me to think up. And uh, I, I thought up one later after I got this out, I had cast the first stone because this is what Jesus is going to talk about. I even brought a stone out with me. And I, I thought that, you know, a great title would be Drop That Rock and Go Home. Uh, <laughs> this is for the sinless one among you. <laughs> but Jesus, uh, it really it starts at verse 53 of chapter 7. And everyone went to his own home. Now that's evidently after a meeting had taken place. The meeting had been a sort of committee out to get Jesus. A group of religious leaders who by this time are full of hostility and hatred toward Jesus and are meeting with a determination to get him. And just before this word occurs and everyone went to his own home, we are told that uh, uh, Nicodemus, the one who had gone to Jesus under the cloak of darkness had been his sole defender at this meeting uh, when people were criticizing uh, Jesus bitterly. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees were murmuring against him. They were plotting on how to destroy him. Uh, they were uh, out to get Jesus, and that's why they had met that night. And Nicodemus had took up for him. And uh, they use a lot of choice words. If you take the trouble to go back and read chapter 7, uh, you will find uh, little comments coming in 
uh, when Nicodemus says something favorable about Jesus, they slur at him, are you also one of them? And uh, then they say, no one good ever came out of Galilee, and you can see their uh, prejudice uh, crop out. And then they'll say, no one in the Pharisees is, uh, is following Jesus, so he really couldn't be any big person. Now look at chapter 8 in this uh, remarkable passage of scripture. And everyone went to his own home, but Jesus, Jesus didn't go to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In a few Sundays, we'll be singing a song, the foxes uh, found rest and the birds their nest in the shade of the forest tree. But thy couch was the sod, O thou man of God, in the forest of Galilee. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. That must have been before daybreak or right at daybreak. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman, where she had been, in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, from now on, sin no more. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Our local um, authority on C.S. Lewis is Don King. <laughs> and every now and then I read C.S. Lewis, and I like to work him into sermons, but I'm always afraid I'm going to get caught quoting the wrong passage or not having finished the book. And um, uh, Don uh, and I were talking this morning before I came in about the horse and his boy. And uh, this is going to work into this uh, sermon somehow. Uh, and <laughs> the reason it is, is that this boy uh, is uh, uh, going to have his story uh, told to him. And uh, he's going to also be told by Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ, that he tells no one anyone else's story. He tells only the person's own story. And why does he say this, Don? 
Well, he tells each man his own story. And in, with each of the main characters in The Horse and His Boy, I think Lewis is working with some aspect of pride. And Calvin, I think that fits into the passage you just read because the Pharisees who were ready to throw the stones were all very proud and they had to be humbled by Jesus. And each of the main characters in this story, the horse and his boy, suffer from some kind of pride and eventually uh, Aslan has to tell them their story and show them the kind of pride that they're exhibiting in their lives. But when the little boy is running hard and trying to get away from the lions and he cannot get away from the lions, he thinks there are more than one lion. And then he discovers that it's just really the one big lion, it's Aslan, who is Christ. And he speaks to him. The little boy is bewildered because Aravas, his little girlfriend, has been pawed by the lion and has ten scratches on her back. And he has been offended by this and brings this up to the lion. Why did you scratch Aravas? Well, uh, this is very interesting because it's a question that a lot of us ask about the very nature of God. If God is loving, why does he end up punishing us? And if you read the story of the horse and his boy, you find that earlier in the story, Aravis, this little girl, had escaped from her father who wanted her to marry this old, ugly man. We probably wouldn't object to her escaping, but the tactics she uses causes one of her servant girls to be punished terribly for it. And when Aravis learns this, she doesn't repent at all, or she doesn't have any sympathy or feeling for this little servant girl. So the scratches she receives is Aslan's way of reminding her of, you know, once you do something, you're held accountable for the way you, you do it. And the fact that she hurt this little servant girl who herself was innocent um, led to her having to have those scratches on her back. It's the same thing that God has to do to us when... I suppose we're um, not always as, sympath as sympathetic and empathetic to other people. It's a way of reminding us of our responsibility to other people. He also shows that the scratches will be healed. Right. And uh, also he points out to uh, the little boy uh, that he won't tell him this story because he deals with him about his right. own story. And his own story is quite interesting too. Yes. Uh, can you tell him enough about that to make him want to read yeah, well, I always think this is the funniest title of all of Lewis's uh, Narnia tales. Uh, if you're familiar with the tales, there's seven of them. And we're all familiar with the stories of uh, a boy and his horse, my friend Flicka, and so forth. Well, Lewis turns us around and calls it the, the horse and his boy. And it's somewhat humorous in that vein. But the story is basically about a, a young boy named Shasta who has been washed up on the shore of a foreign country. Uh, it's south of Narnia, the place called Callerman. And his adoptive father is very cruel to him and uses him practically like a slave. And there's something within Shasta that's calling him away from his father and away from the land that he's born to. And so eventually he escapes with the horse, who is the horse of a noble knight of this country, a horse named Bree. And the two of them set off and travel north uh, towards Narnia. And along the way they meet Erebus and her horse named Huyn. And the four of them join up and uh, head for Narnia, but they have one great difficulty. They have to pass through the capital of Calerman, the name of this country, a place called Tashban. And it's while they're at Tashban that they're all separated and they have their various adventures. And we learn some really interesting things about Shasta and how he is ultimately related to people in Narnia. And uh, so it's, it's a story about going home, and certainly that speaks to all of us who are Christians who are here on this world, but simply waiting to go home and be united with our Father in heaven. Thank you, Don.
Now then, we want to turn back to John chapter 8. You will remember that we were saying a while ago that the committee that was out to get Jesus had been in session. They had been in session because by this time hostility has arisen to Jesus and they wished to find some way to destroy him. One of the things that they had concocted was to send a, a, a question to him to ask him whether or not he pays taxes. So that if he does not pay taxes, uh, they can go to the Roman authorities and say, we're sorry to tell you this, but we have one teacher in our midst uh, who is trying to advocate that uh, people do not pay their taxes to the government and you should investigate him and get rid of him. When this does not work because Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to enjoy the protection of the Roman police force and you're going to enjoy the Roman fire brigade to put out your fires, uh, then you're going to have to be willing to pay uh, a part of the taxes uh, that it takes to keep up this system. Uh, Jesus uh, is not going to be caught by this trap. And so now they really uh, reach to one of the nastiest, dirtiest things that they could come up with in an effort to embarrass Jesus and to, uh, uh, and to get him into difficulty. What they want to do is to find something, something that will be moral, that he will disagree with, that will, dis will, will disassociate his claims as Messiah, or something that will be so cruel that it will invite again the Romans to come in on him and to uh, arrest him. And so we have this incident in which the woman taken in the very act of adultery is dragged into his presence. I indicated earlier uh, in the service that this passage of scripture is uh, held in some question uh, because of its place in ancient texts. Uh, let's just say that the five finger, uh, four fingers and thumb the, on each hand represent a family of texts. And you have a, um, a Western family and you have an Eastern family of texts. Uh, the uh, Eastern text represents Greek text. The Western family represents Latin text. The Vulgate is the Latin text. Some of you have been in my house and you've seen a picture that I have of, of El Greco's idea of what St. Jerome, who translated the uh, Vulgate, looks like, an old print that I happened to like when I was struggling with Greek years ago. And uh, uh, the Latin text has this account in it. The Greek texts, which are really the stronger text, does not have the account at this particular place. Uh, they put it after chapter 21 in Luke, or they have it at the end of John, and there's some dispute. However, this text has now come back in. I noticed the RSV people uh, have uh, placed it back in the newest editions of the RSV because the Roman Catholic Church uh, likes it very much and has put it back in. Uh, the authority of the text, textual evidence now uh, lends more credence to this than there has been in the past. 
And so the lessons that we learn for, from it, uh, we can rely upon as authoritative, I believe, and coming from uh, the teachings of, of the Lord Jesus himself. And I really like the setting here because I think right after this terrible argument had occurred with the uh, meeting of the Sanhedrin, the 70, in their plot to destroy Jesus, and when their meeting is over, I think that uh, this man Nicodemus must have walked away from that meeting thinking in his own mind about Old Testament scriptures uh, that would have reminded him of who the Messiah was because we know later that Nicodemus becomes an open disciple of Jesus. This is the same Nicodemus who came under the cloak of darkness in John 3 and was told that he had to be born again in order to see or to understand the kingdom of God. That's why some people can be great theologians and go straight to hell. They don't know God. You can know a lot about him. You can go to church every single Sunday. You can read all kind of books and still never have humbled yourself and to allow the Savior to grant you that experience through the Holy Spirit of the new birth. And this happens all too tragically. Lewis is one of the people who pointed this out to me years ago, C.S. Lewis, in his writings. Well, now they've gone away home, and I think Nicodemus would have been thinking. Jesus didn't have a home to go to, so he must have gone to the Mount of Olives, we're told here. Spent the night, perhaps, under the stars with his disciples. Thinking there at the Mount of Olives one day from this very place will, will be uh, his ascent into heaven. Thinking that in only a number of days God's purposes for his having come into the world will all come sharply into focus and that that moment is soon coming. And when the first rays of sunlight begin to hit in the morning, he goes back to the temple precincts again. And there in some of the colonnades, some of the porticos of the temple, people gather around to hear him teach. The scribes and the Pharisees have thought that they could trap him. And so they want to catch him with the law if they can. I don't know where they found this woman. Anyone with any sense knows that Caught in the very act of adultery means that the man was present too. And yet they do not bring the man. They must have known where to go. So they go with this evil scheme. Take this woman, probably screaming and yelling at them and trying to fight away from them. And drag her in great commotion through a crowd into the temple precincts and up to where Jesus is and fling her to the ground. They want to ask him a question. They want to talk about the law, a law which they have not used in years and years and years, but a law which they want to use now not because they want justice, but because they want to trap Jesus. Beware of people who want to exercise virtue in order to hurt someone else. 
It's one of the worst sins of all. Exercise your right or your virtue, but do it with an evil motive to hurt someone else. I didn't approve of Richard Nixon's lying. I certainly didn't approve of his language. But I saw a lot of bloodthirsty people sharpening their knives, stabbing away and gloating in an evil way. And that sort of thing is not virtue. It's not Christian. And it may be something that we use against our neighbor or against someone else. The law was clear and they didn't need an explanation. They knew what Leviticus and Deuteronomy taught. They also knew that the law hadn't been put into effect in a long time because the Romans, the Romans had the right to a capital offense, to put someone to death. They had what is called Pax Roma, Roman peace, which meant that Rome did all the killing and that the Jewish authorities did not have the right to put someone to death. They kept, they suppressed riots and they kept law and order and they kept it very strongly. And so they bring the woman. They should have brought the man too because the Levitical law and the Deuteronomy law meant for the man to be stoned as well as the woman, but they didn't know. Someone in the group was out to frame this particular woman and frame Jesus too. The possibilities of the trick are easy to understand. If he said, go ahead and stone her as the law proscribed, which had been in disuse a long time, it would uh, put him in trouble with the Romans. On the other hand, if he said not to punish her for such a heinous sin is adultery which was destroying families and was an evil thing he would be going against the clear law of God and would obviously be watering down his claim to be any prophet of any sort or of the Messiah it was a temptation to him that the devil was putting in his way a temptation to go and ask for the stoning. It would have been a popular thing to do. I'm against this sort of evil woman and the thing which she has done. Stone her to death. And the people would have all applauded. Perhaps like the people applauded when Elijah had the prophets of Baal put to death under a different circumstances in a far more severe day. They wanted blood. People are like that. I have in my office some notes taken from a, a, a Boston newspaper in which in front of one of the great cathedrals in Boston a woman, a young woman, who was on LSD had taken some razor blades and began to cut herself to death, slicing away at her wrists and her throat. When a policeman and a priest tried to intervene and stop her, they were stoned by a crowd of people who wanted to see her die. 
That's the truth. Sex and violence you see in, in the football games. Violence we see as a part of what goes on in our country. And here was sex and violence too. In San Francisco, a man stood on top of the, on, on one of the top places in the St. Francis Hotel. And a crowd of people below seeing a policeman trying to talk him out of the window and to bring him back in were yelling to him, jump, go on and jump. And the policeman remarked later that the crowd were like animals. So the temptation would have been here to allow Jesus to call for the woman's stoning to death. The crowd would have loved it. But the Pharisees knew their man. They knew Jesus too well and how loving he was and that he who had allowed a woman to come and wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head was not about to see this woman stoned to death. He also knew that they were not interested in justice because they had not brought the man. They were trying to track him. What does Jesus do with the situation? We are told that he stoops down and writes in the sand. He takes his eyes off of the woman and he takes his eyes off of them and he looks at the sand and he writes. We don't know what he wrote. This is the only time we're ever told that Jesus wrote anything. There are three times in the Bible when God writes with his finger. One is the Ten Commandments, which were given to Moses. One was at the Feast of Belshazzar, when the finger came and wrote, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And one is here by the Savior, who casts his eyes away from the woman, and in majestic silence, writes on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. There's a lot of speculation that he may have been writing sins which these people had committed, but we don't know that. All we know is that he wrote on the ground. He shifts attention from the woman to himself. And then he looks at them and he says to them, the sinless one among you, you cast the first stone, the sinless one among you. I went to a man's office not long ago and he had a pretty little stone with a velvet kind of thing under it. And I looked at something written on the top of it here. And you know what he had written across there? For the sinless one among you. <laughs> it was a good thing to write. For the sinless one among you. It was to remind himself to be careful. To remind himself to be careful about 
the type of unfair criticism that he could level at others. Jesus invites all 100% non-sinners in the crowd to start stoning. So he shifts himself, the attention from himself, to each one of them and their own individual sins. And then we are told an interesting thing, that beginning at the eldest, now why would the oldest leave first? Maybe the oldest person knows he's lived longer and sinned more. Why would the oldest leave first? Maybe he's lived longer and sinned more. He knows more about human nature. The young person who's all fired up is going to be a little slower to drop his rock. But the old person thinks a while, shakes his head, and he leaves. And then as the younger persons watch the older persons leave, they drop their rocks too. And they leave. Youth sometimes thinks that youth is infallible. And just because you're excited about something, it's right. But on second reflection, the stone is dropped and they go away. Jesus tells no one anyone's story except his own. He knows each one of you and what you have done. He knows me and what I've done. And he knows who's got the rocks and who's throwing them. The mob leaves. And Jesus is left alone with this woman. He had stooped down, and I used to wonder why he stooped down, but you know, if you stop and think about it a little while, she was probably thrown down on the ground. And I think he must have sort of stooped down to get down close to where she was to talk with him. He made himself very vulnerable to do this, to stoop down, but that would be just like Jesus. He didn't look on her as some honorary leper that he wasn't about to touch. He stooped down to talk with her. I'm always amazed at how he'll go to Zacchaeus' house. He'll talk to the woman at the well. He'll stoop down and talk to this woman. And he does it for a purpose. He does it for a purpose. And he said to her, Woman, has anyone condemned you? And she saw that everyone had left. There must have been great tears in her eyes. And she had to obviously say no. Then probably still trembling, she hears Jesus say to her, Neither do I condemn thee. 
Now this is one of the reasons why the early church suppressed the text some. It was afraid that people would take too easy a view of sin. He's not taking an easy view of sin at all. Taking a very hard view of it. Because he tells her, neither do I condemn thee. Go. Go and sin no more. Get up and leave and go away forgiven. Take the opportunity, shoulder the new responsibility, and sin no more. Corey Tin Boom was mentioned by someone who was talking with me this morning. Oh, it was Billy Graham yesterday. And then uh, Billy had stopped to see uh, Corey Tin Boom out on the West Coast. And I remember Corey saying one time, God can forgive sins, but he cannot forgive excuses. He can forgive sins, but he cannot forgive excuses. And so here, the woman knows the joy of forgiveness. That forgiveness comes to her, and it comes in a healing way. She has learned her own story, and she has learned it from him. And she is freed now from that sin. And I expect that she followed Jesus all the days of her life in wanting to be his. Once when I was with Dr. Graham, we were in Wales. There was a great preacher in Swansea at one time whose name was Roland Hill. He told a story that someone wrote up into a poem and someone at the crusade gave it to me and I've kept it all these years, nearly, I guess, 20 years ago. I want to close with it. Will you listen, kind friends, for a moment while a story I unfold? A marvelous tale of a wonderful sail of a noble lady of old. How hand and heart at an auction mart, soul and body she sold. T'was in the broad king's highway near a century ago that a preacher stood, though of noble blood, telling the fallen and low of a savior's love in a home above and a peace that they all might know. All crowded round to listen, and they wept at the wondrous love that could wash their sin and receive them in his spotless mansions above. While slow through the crowd, a lady proud her gilded chariot drove. Make room, cried the haughty outrider. You're closing the king's highway. My lady is late in their majesty's wait. Give way there, good people, I pray. The, pe the preacher heard, and his soul was stirred, and he cried to the writer, Nay. His eye like the lightning flashes, his voice like a trumpet rings. Your grand feet days and your fashions and ways are all but perishing things. It is the king's highway, but I'll hold it today in the name of the king of kings. Then bending his gaze on the lady and marking her soft eye fall, 
And now in his name a sale I proclaim and bids for this lady I call. Who will purchase the whole, her body and soul, her coronet jewels and all? I see already three bidders. The world steps up at the first. I will give her my treasures and all the pleasures for which my votaries thirst. But out speaks the devil boldly, the kingdoms of earth are mine. Fair lady, thy name with an envied fame on the brightest tablet shall shine. And pray what hast thou to offer, thou Jesus of Nazareth unknown? And he gently says, my blood I have shed to purchase her for my own. To conquer the grave and her soul to save, I trod the winepress alone. Thou hast heard the terms, fair lady, that each is offered to thee. Which wilt thou choose and which wilt thou lose, this life or the life to be? The fable was mine, but the choice is thine. Sweet lady, which of the three? She took from her hands the jewels, the coronet from her brow. Lord Jesus, she said, as she bowed her head, the highest bidder art thou. Amen, said the holy preacher, and the people wept aloud. The years have rolled on, and they all have gone round that altar that day who bowed. The lady and throng have been swept along on the wind like the morning cloud. That means that any of us can accept the offer which Jesus brings to us of salvation and know the joy of heaven. Let us bow in prayer. If any of you have never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, remember the grace that he showed at this time. Immediately after this incident, he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has brought light and immortality to life through the good news of the gospel. And that that good news is for every single one of us, indeed for all of the people in this whole wide world. And we need to get the message out to them. And we need to practice it in our daily walk. So help that light to shine in us that we may deal lovingly and tenderly with those whose needs are great. We pray that you will give us the grace to drop our stones and to think about what you've done in forgiving us and be willing to show your love to others. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.